the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Six days after Peter had acknowledged Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus took Peter with him and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountains, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the one God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So as I've been thinking about um, this sabbatical of mine that's coming in a few weeks or so, I have found myself remembering a place that I visited on my sabbatical eight years ago. And that may be because there are, I think it is, four pictures of this place hanging on the walls of my house. I guess I, I kind of wanted to take it home with me, you know, when I left. Uh, but the, the, the place is Tewksbury Abbey. Um, a glorious church in a Tudor village in the Cotswolds of England. And I went there eight years ago because of their approach. The approach they take to mission at Tewkesbury was a great example of what I was studying in that sabbatical, uh, which was congregations doing both traditional and fresh expressions of worship kind of side by side. So Tewkesbury Abbey is this monumental structure from the 1100s, you know, looking as much like a castle as a church, really. You, you walk in and you're just struck by the tremendous height of the roof and these massive pillars holding the roof above you. I mean, the place manages to be both airy and fortress-like all at the same time. So it's, it's a study in transcendence a place to, to worship the God who is so much more and so far beyond our poor powers to understand. And at the same time, Tewkesbury Abbey had begun an effort called Celebrate, uh, which was a mission into the equivalent of a public housing project just on the other side of the wall marking out the Abbey's grounds. And the missioner there was creating Christian community from the bottom up gathering people who were, who were dealing with generational poverty and domestic violence and poor education and economic dead ends. The missioner wanted the people of that housing project to know that God was walking right alongside them in all this. And she knew that the massive ancient abbey building was a stumbling block to approaching God that way. She told the story, in fact, <clears throat> of one resident of the public housing project who had tried going to worship at the abbey but had run out in fear 
a fascinating choice of words, really, fear of the God whom the resident encountered there. So as part of a larger effort to, <clears throat> to serve the community that she was building, the missioner put together worship in an elementary school cafeteria, including kids and parents you know, making biblical scenes out of cut up fruits and vegetables. Um, and then all of them sharing dinner, a, a hot free dinner around those same tables where they had been worshiping. So that was a study in imminence. The, the worship of a God who walks right alongside us and offers us a, a warm hug on a cold rainy day. So keep that contrast in mind between imminence and transcendence as we go back to the readings for this last Sunday after Pentecost our kind of final stop on this journey of uh, Jesus revealing God's light to the world since Epiphany so first from Exodus <clears throat> we hear about Moses going up on Mount Sinai or more accurately, we hear about God calling Moses to come up Mount Sinai. And for the fifth time, actually, as we pick up the story, God tells Moses to come up and wait there so that God could give him the stone tablets bearing instructions for how the Israelites ought to live as God's people in the world. Or actually, what, God, what the text says in Hebrew is more like come up and just be there. Be ready to receive these instructions, kind of in God's good time, whenever God's ready. Well, a great cloud, the, the glory of the Lord, comes and dwells on the mountaintop above Moses, and he spends six days simply being there near God's presence and, and being sanctified for the encounter that's about to come when finally God calls and Moses treks on higher up the mountain entering into the cloud of God's glory, which has become like a devouring fire by this point. And he remains there 40 days, receiving the law, interestingly, for setting up God's dwelling place, the Ark of the Covenant, and then this elaborate tent where it would be housed as the people traveled. In other words, he got God's instructions for bringing the transcendent divine presence into people's day-to-day -day experience. And then we have the gospel reading, Matthew's version of the transfiguration story. So just as Moses spent six days there on the mountain in God's presence before being called into the cloud, so it is six days after Peter has proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah that Jesus takes three of his deputies with him up the mountain. And the disciples, you know, leading up to this have begun to understand that Jesus is God's anointed king. They, they got that much. But now they're about to see that he's a whole lot more than that too. That, that in fact he is God in the flesh. This is a huge change. You know, no longer are people going to be experiencing God's presence on earth simply by keeping the law and worshiping in the temple? Instead, <clears throat> Jesus himself brings God's presence into their lives. So there on the mountain, he is transfigured before them, you know, transformed to reveal this divine glory that, that he always embodies, but which is usually veiled. 
And Moses and Elijah are there too, suddenly, showing Jesus to be this next step in God's self-revelation to the world, like completing what was begun in the law and the prophets. And then in the midst of all this, Peter has something to say. (laughs) Now, it is standard preaching procedure at this point to make fun of Peter um, for thinking that the disciples could sort of capture the moment by setting up three tents, sort of like posting a quick photo of God's glory or something, you know. But I think there's more to it than that because Peter also echoes this Exodus story when he offers to build three tents there on the mountain, sort of an updated version of the tent of meeting that God commanded Moses to take with the people in their travels. So maybe Peter isn't as much of a goofball as we usually make him out to be. At least he knew his scriptures, you know, if nothing else. Anyway, Peter is saying what he's saying, and suddenly God shows up. The cloud of divine glory descending on the mountain just just as it had descended on Mount Sinai. But instead of giving Peter and James and John a set of written laws, God gives them the word made flesh and says, listen to him about Jesus. And the disciples get the message, I think. I mean, that Jesus is more than Moses and Elijah, more than the law, more than just God's anointed king. He is all those things. He is the law and the prophets and God's royal authority embodied. God among them. So given that, quite reasonably, the disciples fall to the ground, terrified. And in that moment, you know, with his blinding glory shining through, what does Jesus, God incarnate, choose to do? You know, does he, does he take the moment to issue divine directives? Or does he rebuke the disciples for being dim-witted? You know, none of that, actually. Instead, he reminds them that he dwells with them, that he has chosen them. God incarnate touches him and takes him by the hand and says, get up and do not be afraid. I mean, what must that have felt like? Can you even begin to imagine what that must have felt like? I don't think I can. I mean, I think honestly we're more comfortable with a God that we can encounter at either end of the spectrum of imminence and transcendence. I mean, I could get it if God, you know, was a consuming firestorm on the mountaintop that miraculously allowed Moses to come out of an an encounter unscathed, you know. That's a God that makes sense to me, one so powerful and, and so distant that if I just keep my own distance, I might come out unscathed too. Or, on the other hand, I could get it if God is a friend. You know, someone who wants to pull up a chair and have a beer. You know, someone who, who actually wants to hear my story and walk with me through it, no matter hard, how hard things get. That's also a God that makes sense. Well, one who's so loving and so close at hand that I really only need to offer my own hand for God to lead me through whatever life brings. But I think the gospel story today tells us something that's even harder to understand and far more glorious. 
that God is a consuming fire, ready to purge us of the sin that clings so closely, you know, especially as we stand here at the brink of Lent. And God is our friend who reaches out to us as we lie there cowering on the ground, you know, afraid of all the things we can't manage on our own, but a friend who touches us and pulls us to our feet and says, get up, don't be afraid. So if that's true, how do we connect with a God who is both imminent and transcendent? I don't think the key is just work harder to figure it out for yourself. Don't think that's it. The key, I think, is being willing to connect in whatever way it is you find God coming to you. You know, calling from the whirlwind or knocking on your door. And that's what might be the deepest mystery of it all, that, that God is waiting for you, hoping that you'll take the hike up the mountain, hoping that you'll reach out your hand when you're down, hoping that you will listen to that still, small voice coming to you on the winds of the Spirit. What stands between us and the presence of the divine is simply our willingness to have the encounter absurdly enough the Lord God is waiting for you to say yes I am willing for you to do whatever you will do with these things that baffle me or break me or beat me down the sovereign of the universe the, the flaming fire of love the creator of all that was and is and ever will be God is waiting for you to look up or look in or look to someone you love and say, Come, Lord, I am willing. <laughs>